Well, hello and welcome to the latest episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, a podcast where we take a look at the biggest stories happening across the global sports industry, particularly through the lens of deal making and finance. I'm your co-host, Eric Fisher, U.S. Editor for Sport Business. As always, I'm joined by Chris Russo from Fifth Generation Sports, and we're uh, just a few days into the World Cup, and boy, howdy, it, uh, what a tournament it has been already. We're, we're taping this just hours after Japan's upset of Germany, Saudi Arabia has upset Argentina, and we just had craziness, so we're just a few days into the group stage. Yeah, I've been up since five in the morning watching the games, Eric. It's pretty amazing, and we still have a few weeks left, so looking forward to it. It's sort of like the inverse of uh, you know, all those late nights staying up during October postseason baseball, and now it you know almost like uh, getting up for Wimbledon every day or something. It's fun. There's no one else up. The city's quiet, but the games are on. Well, we are going to talk about the World Cup. Uh, There is a a lot still to unpack there just in these first few days of competition. We've got a Big announcement with a potential team sale in the Premier League and meet the new boss, same as the old boss as it comes to Walt Disney. So we're going to break all that down. But first, we're going to have a conversation with Josh Rawwich from the Baseball Hall of Fame. This is one of the uh, most storied institutions in, in all of North American sports. And he's been at the helm for about a year and a half now. And he's going to break down what he's got going on up there. So stay tuned for that conversation. And then Chris and I will be back on the other side to, to uh, break down the news of the week. Stay tuned. We're very pleased to have as our guest on Sport Business Finance Weekly, Josh Rawwich, president of the National Baseball Hall of Fame. The Cooperstown, New York-based institution since 1939 has served as the shrine of baseball and engaging in a mission it describes as preserving history, honoring excellence, and connecting generations which in turn has made the Hall of Fame one of the most talked about entities in all of North American sports. Raw, which was named to the Hall of Fame presidency last year after a prior career in baseball communications spanning nearly three decades through prior roles with Major League Baseball's Arizona Diamondbacks, Los Angeles Dodgers, and MLB Advanced Media. And in his tenure in Cooperstown to date, Rawwich has sought to amplify the Hall of Fame's mission in a quickly changing and more dynamic landscape for museums and cultural institutions of all types. We're talking to Josh as the Hall of Fame is now entering one of its most frenetic periods of the year with the forthcoming selection processes for its 2023 class of inductees. Beginning first in early December with the voting results of its Contemporary Baseball Era Players Committee, and then in January with the results from a ballot sent to members of the Baseball Writers Association of America. And on a personal note, I've been well familiar with the Baseball Hall of Fame my entire life, having grown up about 40 minutes away from Cooperstown, and I've had the pleasure of knowing Josh professionally for many years, and we welcome him here to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Eric. Look forward to doing it with you, Chris. So let's start on your own sort of personal journey here. This is uh, one of those uh, personal and professional things that uh, you, know, you don't see a juxtaposition quite as severe as yours. You're a California native. You spent your career out there and in Arizona, going to bucolic rural upstate New York, big, big change. But what uh, what attracted you to this opportunity and go through such a, a big life change? I mean, more than anything, it's really the, the institution, as you just described it, when you think about Cooperstown and you think about how anybody who ever loved the game of baseball as a kid, you kind of imagine that someday you might end up in Cooperstown. And obviously nobody ever thinks it's going to happen the way it has happened in this fashion where I'm working there. But it really was just the idea that I could be in such an amazing place with such an incredible staff. And this town, as you know, having been here and grown up not far away, is just so special. I mean, I've been yep. walking, walking Main Street yesterday with my parents who are here for Thanksgiving. It really just it's it's such an incredible place to raise a family, to spend time. People care about people in, in um, amazing ways. And so. Well, it's definitely a challenge and it's a change and the cold is different than when I grew up with and all those things. It wasn't a very tough decision. I mean, when I when I first got the call, I, I told my wife about it and I remember her saying, how would you ever turn that down if, if you got that opportunity? And that's really the way we've looked at it. It's an amazing adventure and a really special place to come to work every day. Josh, most fans and people in the business are familiar with Cooperstown and the Hall of Fame voting, but I know you do a, a bunch of other things in the context of, of your job. Can you give the listeners a sense of just the come on, high level key activities and initiatives that, that your organization manages? Yeah, I think you're right, Chris, that, that most people do think of us as in a lot of ways, just a plaque gallery, but this is a three-story museum and a, and a full-blown 
museum with with 90 full-time employees and close to 200 when you're talking about part-time and and the full staff. So, I, I mean, just about any business, everything from accounting and finance to HR and operations and security and marketing and all the things that you would think about in any business are obviously part of my job in trying to create a, a culture that that 90 to 200 people can truly enjoy every day and come into the office and feel like we're, we're doing right by this institution and its mission. You know, things that people probably don't think about are the exhibits. When we're doing new exhibits, we're focused pretty heavily right now on the Black Baseball Initiative that will be opening up in April of 2024. That's a major undertaking that will have both a physical exhibit space here in Cooperstown, but also traveling and digital components and education components. And so that's probably something that when you walk around, you don't think about how much goes into putting together a new exhibit. You know, it, development. We're a nonprofit. So I think a lot of people probably tend to think that Major League Baseball funds us as other leagues some, sometimes take advantage of having league funding for their halls of fame. In our case, we're an independent nonprofit. So everything from going out and finding donors to having to tens of thousands of members and the fulfillment of the things that you get if you're a member and putting together magazines and our website and social media. And it's so, I mean, obviously go on and on, but really the, the main crux of my job is really running the institution itself, development, and then doing, honestly, a lot of stuff like this, being the public face of um, interacting with Hall of Famers, with media, with the public, and pretty amazing gig when you talk about it in that in that way. Who makes the Hall of Fame each year remains one of the most hotly debated topics in all of North American sports, much more than any other Hall of Fame, and is really something that goes far beyond the economic size of your institution. Why do you think that is, and how do you look to capitalize on all of that energy to advance the mission of the Hall of Fame? You know, for some strange reason, and it probably goes, it's probably the history of the sport. And when you talk about almost 200 years that the game's been played in some form or fashion, I think there is baseball being America's pastime, and people can argue now whether it's as popular as it once was, etc. But it, it is still, it means so much to so many, and it is held to such a higher standard probably than so many other things in American society. We, we expect our baseball to be a certain way. And so I think that the debate about who gets in is greater, frankly, than in other, um, in other sports and other, even the, we, we have a, a, a former employee here who runs the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, great guy. They're probably not debating it on a regular basis the way that they're debating the Baseball Hall of Fame. So some of it is, I think, the actual history of it. Some of it is just that the, the love of the sport makes us being held to a, a different standard. And then really the way we capitalize on it, I think, is um, when you set up a calendar the way that it currently is, you kind of get through October and you have this, we'll open up a new exhibit in the next couple of weeks focused on the World Series. But then you immediately turn the page into the era committees and and those who might have gotten overlooked on the on the BBWA ballot. And as soon as we announce that, you're six weeks out and you've got the, the BBWA ballot coming out. And then you look up and you're in spring training. So I think it in a lot of ways, if you think of the NFL and the way they do the combine or you think of the draft and other sports and things like that, I think we have a pretty full calendar of events. And so we try to take advantage of it in that way. There's always something to be engaging our members or our fans on. And in this case, the next uh, two months will be very heavily focused on who gets in, who doesn't, and why. Josh, in terms of attendance or visitors at, at Cooperstown, have you fully rebounded from the COVID pandemic? And, and what did the institution do over that time to kind of sustain itself? I know you weren't there for all of that, but talk a little bit about where you are today and, and how things went over the past couple of years. Yeah, so unfortunately, we have not fully rebounded. I know we, we actually had quite a good year, I can say, um, from a from an attendance and financial standpoint. At its peak, we would draw, well, pre-pandemic, between 275 and 300,000 fans a year to Cooperstown. Pandemic year, down to 60,000. So, I mean, we wound up in 2021 back around 150,000. And then this year, our goal was to get kind of about halfway back to about 210,000 thereabouts. And we'll probably end up in the 225 range. So we outperformed where we thought we'd be. But we still have a, a, a significant way to go before we get back to pre-pandemic numbers. And it's hard to know without really seeing how the world bounces back, whether we'll get back to that that 275 soon. But I think what, what we do feel very comfortable in is that um, we there's an experience here. What we did when I before I got here was really put together all the things that you saw across America, an experience that was touchless and that well, you were able to socially distance and all those sorts of things. How we got through it was really, in a lot of ways, the generosity of several donors really stepped up significantly to help us. And we took advantage of, obviously, whether it was uh, grants or other government funding to help us survive. 
But I can tell you that the hall right now is in as good of a financial position it has been in, in decades. And I think that's a that's a very positive sign for the future. And we're very hopeful that if we're not back to pre-pandemic numbers in 2023, we're going to be a lot closer. And people are starting to feel very comfortable. All of the restrictions and things that we had to put in place are now gone. And it really is a normal experience at the museum. We're just very careful to always be watching what's going on and make sure we don't take anything for granted. What is your reaction to this recent letter that Pete Rose sent to MLB Commissioner Rob Manford, who is on your board? And could there be a potential pathway for Rose to be considered for the Hall of Fame, even if he stays on the league's ineligible list? Obviously, very aware of the letter that was that was sent. And um, we kind of respect the, the commissioner's comments and what he said recently about it. I, you know, from our standpoint, going back to 1990, the, the rule has been in place that if you're on the permanently ineligible list by Major League Baseball, that really makes you ineligible for either the BBWA ballot or the, the what used to be known as the Veterans Committee and now the ERA Committee. And there hasn't been to this point a movement to change that rule. That doesn't mean that it won't be discussed at the board level. And obviously, I can't really get ahead of that discussion and, and share where, where it could or couldn't go. But I, I do think in due time, we'll wind up having that discussion uh, with the board and seeing if there's any sort of appetite to change that rule. But up till now, there really hasn't been. It really It's really been the belief of the board that uh, if MLB deems you ineligible, that uh, it would make you also ineligible for for the Hall of Fame. Josh, switching gears, there has really been uh, a boom or a resurgence in the collectible space over the past couple of years, trading cards, memorabilia, obviously NFT space up and down. But but thinking more about the traditional collectibles, how are you uh, able to sort of capitalize on that or be part of that trend and boom? What are some of the plans that you have in, in that area? Well, it's in a few different ways. I think, um, first of all, fortunately, we were slightly ahead of it. And I can't say that this was by any means, I don't think anybody thought, hey, wow, baseball cards are going to become crazy popular again during a worldwide pandemic. But we did open an exhibit about five years ago, focused specifically on baseball cards, which is an incredible exhibit. You walk around there and if you were any kind of collector as a kid, not just baseball cards, but we actually feature all collectible cards garbage pail kids and the things of that nature are all on there. So we do have an exhibit that that capitalizes on that in the sense that people can come and kind of nostalgically relive their past that way. But we did earlier this year do a deal with uh, Candy Digital on an NFT program, which we think is obviously very important to be a part of. And ultimately, when you're talking about digital collectibles, they are going to be, they, they have been one of the leaders, if not the leader in the space. And we want to make sure that we're at the forefront of that, because frankly, if it continues in the way that it has been going up to this point, there's really no limit when you think about all of the things that we have as artifacts that could potentially become digital collectibles. It really is an incredible potential revenue stream for the Hall of Fame. But then, I mean, if you if you just look at what the, the value is on these and the excitement about collecting things, we are so perfectly positioned to be able to tell fans about coming here. If you If you love looking at your own collection of signed baseballs or bats or gloves. I mean, how could you not love walking the halls here and seeing the greatest collection in the history of the world of all of these things? I think we certainly have an eye to the future when you think about digital collectibles, but we're clearly not ignoring the fact that we have 40,000 physical artifacts and 3 million documents and hundreds of thousands of photos here that we can share with people who we know are actually really into this and, and that the revival of it is, has already come and is continuing to grow. The entire landscape for museums and cultural institutions of, of all types, as you well know, is very rapidly evolving. And there is a greater desire among a number of visitors for greater inter interactivity and technology and so forth. How are you adapting how the Hall of Fame presents its collection and tells the story of baseball without surrendering some of those traditional elements that make Cooperstown what it is? Well, you just hit on really, I think, our, our single biggest challenge and opportunity in the years to come is that. We have to continue to stay relevant for the next generation of fan that that is obviously walking around quite often with one AirPod in their ear and holding their phone and and engaging in a totally different way. So we, we've done a good job, I think, over the years of adding interactive elements to the exhibits that have been updated. But what we really have to do is, is also look at if let's say we're not going to update a particular exhibit, how can we at least in, in its entirety, how can we add an interactive element to that area? And so... Um, there's there's a number of different, we added QR codes around the building right now that help you with your visit, as you'd see in any number of, of places you go to in the world now. We're looking at various AR and VR technologies. We're looking at a, a couple of interactives that I think will be put in place before next year that I can't quite get ahead of until we announce them. But really, I think it's 
some of them are very some are very obvious. You think about it from any of our perspectives, you'd come in and you'd say, man, there's got to be a way we can get people more to engage on on their phones and, and interactively. But some of it is stuff that we probably haven't even begun to think about yet. And we're having conversations with pretty impressive people. I can tell you that we had an amazing conversation with a guy who's, whose job he described was as a futurist. I thought, how is that even a, a real position? And by the time we hung up the phone, there were several of us just going, man, there are incredible opportunities here to bring technology into the museum that will engage people on a totally different level. But at the same time, we have to make sure that my dad, who was walking around the museum yesterday, isn't so scared of what's going on and that he's still having the experience that he wanted because he grew up watching baseball in the 40s, 50s and 60s. So it's in a lot of ways not not dissimilar from what MLB is trying to do in ballparks is and, and all sports and entertainment. How do we entertain multiple generations who view things differently? But I think we can accomplish it. I really believe that with some of the stuff that we're thinking about doing that we'll probably announce within the next I don't know, six months or so, we will find a way, I think, to be relevant to all generations, all backgrounds. And certainly every time we open up a new exhibit, the Black Baseball exhibit, will have all sorts of technology mixed into it that will just be a natural, obvious part of the exhibit. So it's a huge challenge. I think what our single biggest uh, opportunity is in the building. Josh, beyond the experience in the building, when you think about sharing all that you have with fans who can't make it to Cooperstown for whatever reason, either living in the U.S. or around the world. What is the strategy to share the history and, and, and everything you have with those fans? I know you mentioned NFTs, but are you thinking about enhancing what you do in social media or websites or other? How do you share all of that with a, with a global audience? Oh, man, you guys have some awesome questions, uh, and I appreciate it because it leads me to some good stuff. The answer is yes, on a social media front, 100%. We will be, we actually give you a little bit of a heads up that this coming week, we're going to be putting a, a digital content director position on our website and we'll be hiring out, creating out really a digital content hub that will allow us to do all sorts of new stuff in the years to come. So that that's forthcoming, certainly from a social standpoint. We're launching a brand new website early next year. We've been working hard at work at that all year long. And so I think being able to have a website that, Right now, I don't know that everybody realizes if you're a fan sitting in in whatever, Scottsdale, Arizona, you can go on and look through our collection in a lot of ways that we have to make sure that people realize that you can go and find many of these 40,000 artifacts and the stories behind them. But I think the other part of what we're really starting to do is look at how we can take the collection in certain ways on the road. For many years, the Hall of Fame had what was called Baseball is America, which was a traveling exhibit that went for, for about five to seven, I think about five years or so in the early 2000s. And then about five years ago, there was another traveling exhibit called We Are Baseball. Probably was a little less successful, but no less impressive. It just didn't do as well when it was traveling. What we've got to figure out is, is, and we've actually tasked one person on the staff here to start to put together a plan on how we can take some elements of what we have and just pick an example, a handful of really cool Pittsburgh Pirates artifacts and bring them to Pittsburgh with a Hall of Famer and tell the stories in a community of people that maybe can't get to Cooperstown so that it's just enough to get you to want to come to Cooperstown. And I think that's the balance we have to have is we, we can't make it so that you've seen everything you need to see when you come to the ballpark in Pittsburgh or you go to the mall in Pittsburgh and you see our traveling exhibit. If that doesn't make you want to come to Cooperstown, then we've probably failed if you feel like, OK, I saw what I needed to see. So it's a little combination of giving them enough um, that it piques their interest but not so much that they don't want to come here because it's there is no substitution for walking the halls of, of of our building and being on Main Street and seeing what this place has meant for 80 plus years. So that's what that's um, we're at the very beginning stages of trying to figure out what that looks like. But I would actually encourage, particularly because you've got such a sports business audience listening, take a look at our website, go to baseballhall.org slash employment. We've got some really <laughs> cool opportunities here and people in the sports industry. I just don't think we, I never thought of this as like, this is where I might work after the Dodgers or the Diamondbacks. It was not a thing that I ever thought of, but we have so many of the same positions that people have at teams or leagues or agencies, and it's just a special place to work. And we need really smart people who understand sports business and want to come work in Cooperstown. We just had Jesse Cole from the Savannah Bananas on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and that team is set to head to Cooperstown next year for a game. Beyond the primary showcase of induction weekend itself in July and this Bananas game coming up, what else is in the pathway for special events in Cooperstown? 
So glad you brought that up because I should have mentioned that earlier, that the, the, the bringing the bananas here was a big deal. We reached out to Jesse kind of knowing how the way they think. And, and that is, we believe, going to sell out incredibly quickly and bring an entirely different generation of fans and type of fan to come to Cooperstown and, and see what we have here. The other one that I don't think everyone necessarily realizes is our annual Memorial Day Hall of Fame Classic. It's essentially an old timers game, for lack of a better term. But we get a player from all 30 teams to come, usually a guy relatively recently retired in their 40s. So it's not like they're it, it's not the most competitive game in the world, but it's certainly not softball by any means. It's guys that we all grew up lo- knowing and loving and that the next generation knows and loves. So that happens every Memorial Day and has a golf tournament surrounding it. So those are really the three big weekends are obviously Hall of Fame weekend, classic weekend, and now we're adding the bananas event in September of next year. But there are always what's what's pretty cool about the hall that again, most people probably don't realize is quite often we have things on site, whether it's an author series during the summer. So you might be walking around there and someone you get to sit down and hear somebody who wrote a book talk about their experience. Or we do the during the All-Star game and during the World Series, we have a uh, we call it a gala. I don't know if I would necessarily imagine it as a gala, but it's you can go and watch the All-Star game on the night of the All-Star game in the Grandstand Theater and have trivia and all sorts of cool events. So almost any time you're choosing to come to the hall, there is some sort of event going on, whether it's educational or programming. And like I said, you walk in, you put your phone on the QR code. It's going to tell you everything that's going on today at the hall, everything that's going on tomorrow at the hall. And I think, uh, again, I, I would encourage people to, to take a look at the website and you'll see everything that's coming up. Josh, some of the other Hall of Fames, especially uh, the, the Pro Football Hall of Fame, have recently embarked on development uh, programs and initiatives, real estate driven projects. Is any of that in the works for the Baseball Hall of Fame in terms of additional development in and around what you already are, are, are working on there in, uh, in Cooperstown? Probably not. To the extent that you're thinking, and obviously in Canton, it's a whole different can of worms what they're doing, and it's quite impressive, and you're seeing it at ballparks across the country and other places, but part of the charm of Cooperstown is that it doesn't have that, and I think we'd be, we'd probably really hurt Cooperstown if we went and developed Main Street in the way that other places are are developing their areas, but that doesn't mean we can't still do things to help expand our footprint, and one of the, one of the unique opportunities we'll have in the years to come is the for those who have been to Cooperstown, there was a general store right next door that was literally what you would think it is, the general store. Right now, we use it on Hall of Fame weekend, on induction weekend. We'll, we'll kind of have a secondary merchandise store that we use that yep. for. But that's a pretty uh, large building that I think we'll be able to expand to at some point in the next decade. We've got to really think about how to properly do that. And we have not yet dived into the cost or what exactly that should or could be. But I'd say when you're thinking about development, that's probably the one spot we'd go to. And I think the key would be not to over-commercialize Main Street because that's part of the charm of this place is that we haven't done that. And that's not a knock on the places that are doing it. It's just I think we'd really do a disservice to Cooperstown if we suddenly turn this into Ballpark Village. That works in some places. I don't think it works right up here. Well, clearly a lot happening in and around Cooperstown and with the Hall of Fame, we're going to be continuing to track that across all of the sport business platforms. But for now, we want to thank Josh Rawich, the Hall of Fame president, for spending this time with us. That was awesome. Thank you, guys. Really cool to catch up and uh, hopefully get to see you up here in Cooperstown soon. Absolutely. And we are back on Sport Business Finance Weekly, and we want to thank Josh Rawich again from the Baseball Hall of Fame for spending that time with us. And turning our attention now to the news of the week, you know, it's just been a frenetic run when it comes to major pro teams, really on both sides of the Atlantic, being uh, put up for sale. And we've already talked at length about a a bunch of them, the, the Phoenix Suns, the Ottawa Senators, Washington Nationals, Washington Commanders, Liverpool, list goes on and on. Well, we've got another big one uh, adding to the list now with the Premier League's Manchester United, uh, the Glazers, uh, who also own the NFL's Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They put out a statement that they are considering strategic alternatives, which could lead to a sale. It's very much the same language that Dan Snyder, the commander's owners, put out. But ostensibly, the club is openly for sale now, and they are going to be listening to offers. You know, Chris, you've been around a long time. I I don't think, and I've been around a long time too. I don't think we've ever seen a confluence of major teams being up for sale at the same time like this. We really haven't, Eric. And and you you didn't mention the LA Angels as well. So oh yeah, sorry, yeah, the the Angels and potentially the Baltimore Orioles too. 
Exactly. So, yeah, we really do have a lot of teams on the market. I think part of that is due to some of the high prices that have been fetched for other sales over the last year. The Broncos, Broncos Chelsea. The market. So, A, there's a good market. B, I think more than ever, we have private equity interest in supporting these deals. So while you need a typically high net worth person to lead and to be the driver of a deal, there's a lot of supporting private equity that we've never seen the likes of before in terms of making these deals happen. And then each individual situation has its own dynamics. In the case of of the Glazers, you know, there are these attractive market conditions, but on the other hand, there are challenges with the organization from a winning on the pitch standpoint, the Ronaldo situation. So there are a lot of reasons that would say, you know, maybe now is a good time to take advantage of a great market and and get the get the assets sold. Yeah, the dynamics are certainly it's a little bit certainly uh, uh, very different than the uh, kind of crisis situation that was surrounding the uh the Suns or even some of the circumstances uh, surrounding Snyder and the commanders. This one's a little bit different, but it's been a bit of a slow burn in the sense that this was a team that really was dominating the Premier League uh, through much of the 90s and into the early 2000s. And during this Glazer period of ownership, things have really kind of changed where Man City and Liverpool, Arsenal, some of these other clubs are in the top of the Premier League have really sort of passed them by and and man you really just doesn't have the same kind of power on or off the uh the pitch that they uh you know once did you know half a generation or a generation ago but they still have a fan base that you know demands winning and wants to win badly in in a very global one because they were one of the first european soccer teams to really get a serious foothold in both the united states and asia and nothing less than winning the EPL championship is really considered a success. It's almost like the Yankees right. in, in baseball. You really need to win it all. If you have a good season come in second or third, that really doesn't satisfy the fans. And they certainly uh, speak their mind, put pressure on ownership. And again, we have that situation combined with, on the other hand, some really interesting dynamics in the sale market where, again, despite a lot of teams for sale at the same time, you really have a frothy market with, again, PE money, with high net worth money. So the confluence of those things, I think, is driving this decision. Yeah. And there were a lot of the Chelsea situation, just specifically to uh, the Premier League, even though um, you know there's going to be interested suitors from all over the world, no doubt. But you know, a lot of folks who, you know, came uh, as runners up behind the bully group in that Chelsea situation, you know, many of them, Jim Ratcliffe, others have, uh, you know, already sort of, uh, you know, raised their hand in varying degrees saying like, hey, this would be a very interesting opportunity. So you raise a very good point that the Glazers would not be doing this, even admit all the struggles that we've mentioned here, they would not be doing this without knowing that these are, you know, these are safe waters to be entering into. Absolutely. There are cover bidders, were cover bidders in the Chelsea situation, in the Broncos situation. There are rumors of of many, many bidders in the case of the Phoenix Suns. Again, it's a bit of a different asset, but may end up selling in the same price range. So again, there still is no shortage of folks that want to take a control position in these types of entities. And uh, and, and I expect that uh, that they'll get some interesting phone calls here over the next couple of weeks at Rain, who is the investment bank, uh, repping them as well as the, the Glazers themselves. And it's going to be very interesting to see how this sort of manifests itself from a time perspective, because, again, you don't have the type of situation that you had with Abramovich before with Chelsea or with Sarver or you know, some of these others, you know, there's a a clock on the Ottawa Senators situation now, which we didn't mention before. This one can sort of go a little bit more on its own pace. It can, Eric, theoretically, but I think once you make that kind of statement and that decision, it it really does help to move it along swiftly because otherwise you've got sponsors that are in limbo. You've got potentially employees and staff that are thinking about, well, what does that mean for me? You've got players that you've got to make decisions on in terms of Keeping or or, or letting a, go, and as you reference, there's already unhappiness there. Yeah, and so I think that yes, you're right. They don't have the same kind of time pressure as some of these other situations. But I think once you kind of put the flag, that's why in a, in a strange way, many 
Premier League teams are kind of for sale, but not really for sale because the owners don't want to upset the fan base or create all the the hoopla surrounding what might be a change in in ownership. So I think once you make that decision to go forward, my guess is they're going to want to do it swiftly, although they've left their options open. They've said they're going to explore different transactions, but my guess is they're going to try to want to do it swiftly. Well, that's going to be one very interesting to watch because not only will it be a very, very big number at or near a an industry record, but as we've just described, this is a a a dormant brand on a certain sense, but one that's you know very revered, a lot of history there, a lot of passion there, and this is a you know something primed for a pretty robust rebound situation. Agreed, Eric. And again, the globalization of soccer—it's always been the global game. But as we see with World Cup and then all of this other media distribution, amazing power in many different markets. Well, that's a great segue to our, our next topic here in terms of the start of the World Cup. And as we mentioned up top, it has been a just a wild first few days in the uh, in the group stage. And the results are really bearing them out, really, in, in certainly in the United States, but in, in many European countries as well. Uh, we're seeing very, very robust early numbers for some of these initial matches, pacing well ahead, uh, you know, mid to high double digit percentages, if not triple digit percentages ahead of of what the pace was for the 2018 World Cup. And uh, despite all of the issues in and around uh, Qatar, which we'll get into in a moment here, that the the passion for the competition itself, you know, it, it's showing few limitations. The, the early results have been encouraging, but I think we've got some really big opportunities, I'd say, ahead of us, which starting with the Friday game, although this this podcast will drop after that game, the Friday game between the U.S. and the U.K. England, ought yeah. to be one of the biggest matches of all time in terms of, of audience and ratings in the U.S. And then as we go to the game, ultimately on Tuesday for the U.S., that could determine whether they advance or not. That also could really drive some significant numbers, even though these games are in the afternoon as opposed to prime time. Uh, again, Eric, you mentioned earlier on overall, uh, Argentina struggling, Germany struggling. Their comebacks over the next you know couple of weeks are going to be interesting to watch. And so I think there's a lot of good stories here that are that are playing out in front of not only U.S. fans, but really around the world. So it's it's holiday week here in the United States. So some of the dynamics in terms of viewership may be also skewed a little bit here. But this also sort of raises a whole other situation that we've got these early morning games, early afternoon games in terms of the North American audience you know, a little bit later, certainly for uh, the UK and continental Europe. But this is also the way these viewership uh, patterns are manifesting themselves. We're in this new dynamic of work being very just writ large, being very different in the in the post COVID period here, or, you know, wherever we are, you know, vis-a-vis the pandemic that, you know, we, we're in a remote work situation in a way that we've never really been in the history of labor and so how that kind of you mentioned getting up early to watch the games you can do that very seamlessly and you know i've been able to do the same plenty millions of other people have been able to do this and being able to sort of multitask and, and certainly mobile helps a lot with that as well and this is one of those major events where you've got a major advancements in how live sports content is deployed intersecting with the very fast changing nature of work itself it does make it easier, Eric, the remote work context to be watching these games. As you recall, years and years ago, when people would be watching March Madness during the days at work, they'd have something called a boss button, which you could right. click on your computer to sort of get rid of the live stream uh, and return a spreadsheet if your boss came by while you were watching at work. Now people are working from home, as you suggest. I think people are used to watching particularly sports 24 hours a day. They're used to betting on sports 24 hours a day. So I do think that's going to help with the viewership. We also have in the U.S., for example, both the Fox linear broadcast and we have the Telemundo Spanish language streaming. So when you combine those two things, it also grows the audience. I think in the U.S. on the first game, it was about 8 million on Fox and about three and a half million on on Telemundo. So when you yep. add these streaming services, again, not only in the U.S., but in other parts of the world, you're now capturing cord cutters. You're capturing people who aren't necessarily subscribing to satellite, and it creates more, more viewership. 
Yeah, you raise a good point. This was one of the things that we were really interested to see in the United States, how it was going to man- manifest itself. And we have done a, a number of stories, both in terms of Fox's own coverage plans, but you know what Telemundo was doing on the Spanish language side in the United States, and, and they're the NBC Universal unit, and they each had their separate lane of rights, but would they sort of compete against each other? How would that sort of manifest itself? And during these initial few days of the tournament, it seems like in a certain sense, they've each got their respective audiences and it's been sort of additive that if you're in front of the television, it's sort of best screen wins kind of thing that if you're You've got cable, you're in front of a television, you've got the Fox option. If you want the Spanish language coverage or you're more in a remote situation, want to be on your phone, tablet, what have you, there's an option there too. And it seems almost sort of non-cannibalistic here. It it does seem that way, Eric. I would be curious to know of all the people who watch the Telemundo broadcast via streaming, how many of them actually speak Spanish and whether this, you know, ultimately... (laughs) What NBC has been able to do is really create effectively a cord cutter or cord never package in addition to a Spanish language package or whether, for the most part, the people who are watching Telemundo are really looking for that Spanish language commentary. We don't know the answer. I don't know. If we'll no, ever that know. data has not come out yet, but that's those are questions we've been asking as well. Yeah. And so, again, but, you know, in general, with more choices and giving consumers more options and, as you suggest, with different work lifestyles. I would expect as we plow through this uh, World Cup season, as long as the U.S. can kind of hang in there and make it a, a couple of rounds deep, I do think we'll see some record numbers overall on the ratings. Now, in the meantime, as we thought might be the case, there have still been some hiccups in terms of how this tournament is sort of intersecting with some of the uh, cultural traditions of the host country of Qatar. And we've had a late prohibition on beer sales at the stadium and something that really has created a lot of friction uh, with Anheuser-Busch and Budweiser, which is the official tournament beer sponsor and paying big money for those rights and then not being able to serve its own product at the event causing big problems and then we've got you know the stadiums prohibiting you know teams and players from wearing one love armbands and so these things were almost sort of inevitable just given where the world writ large is versus where the country is relative to its own culture sure i mean the intersection of of politics and culture and social issues uh, is not necessarily new i always wonder why aren't some of these issues addressed when the bids are being, uh, you particularly know, particularly the beer thing, because that was a that was a last minute sort of switch. It were really two switches in the sense that the first they move stands further away and then nothing, not a, at all. And it, when you're and this is one of FIFA's primary sponsors. And so you, you raise an excellent point that if you're going to put the tournament there, the time to hash all this out was during the bid stage. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And then as far as what the players wear or don't wear, what statements they make and and don't make. I'm I'm a proponent of players being able to have you know leverage their platforms and and, and speak their minds. I do think that it's not though just an issue of this World Cup. When you think about it, even the U.S. leagues, you know, work to regulate what a player can put on on his uniform or not. And so the general consensus has tended to be across multiple leagues in multiple situations is when you're in the in the field of play, that's your you know owner's kind of domain in terms of what people are wearing. And then when you're outside, you can the make whatever statements players. you want. But again, it's a hard balance. And again, what I would just point out is it isn't just Qatar. It isn't just World Cup. The issue of what a player can put on his shoes or socks or jerseys. That is an issue that all leagues are dealing with and trying to navigate some some difficult social issues and concerns al- along the way. Which makes what the WNBA and NBA and some of these others, uh, particularly here in, in North America, have done so interesting where they've tried to sort of get ahead of that dynamic that you aptly raise. And so you almost have a situation where management and player are almost sort of speaking with one voice, a collective voice of some sort. And there hasn't seemed to be any sort of effort, certainly not among the, the the host entity, but even between FIFA and the respective players, there doesn't seem to be that same kind of effort to, on whatever an issue it may be, to speak with a more collective voice. You know that 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 is a, that is a good point, Eric. Which is, you know, with the NBA and with some of the other U.S. leagues. In fairness, there is an ongoing dialogue about these kind of discussions, issues, points. 
And with, again, FIFA's involved in a lot of things, but with the World Cup kind of coming together once every four years, it may be harder to have that regular communication or it doesn't seem like there has been that regular communication. And all of a sudden you're dealing with one of these issues on the eve of the event, uh, which maybe, again, could have been worked out in some other way months in advance. Right. Well, much more to come on that front because uh, Certainly, we've got weeks to go yet on this tournament, and we don't know yet all the twists and turns it's going to take both on on and off the pitch. So more to come there. But uh, in the midst of that, really just uh, hours after the uh, the first match of the tournament, we uh, had a bombshell piece of news that really was unexpected uh, back here in the United States, where uh, Walt Disney Company very abruptly ousted their chief executive, Bob Chapek, and had brought back in his predecessor, Bob Iger, who had picked Bob Chapek to succeed him. But 33 months after that uh, move was made, Bob Iger is back running ESPN or running uh, Walt Disney, which, of course, owns ESPN and a whole bunch of other assets. And so and it, and it immediately portends a whole bunch of changes and most fundamentally one where they've really uh, Bob Iger has already tried to kind of restructure and do a number of things to put the creative voice and the storytelling uh, uh, power of the company front and center in terms of how the company is entirely organized. Uh, so a big shift there. There's also some yeah, other things that have happened in the market since Bob has left and come back. Right. Promote, you know, one of the biggest being that maybe in the early days of the Disney Plus growth and excitement, the focus was how many subscribers are we signing up? Oh my goodness, Disney's doing extremely well. People think they couldn't compete with Netflix now. They're, now again, all these streaming services are really being challenged to be profitable or yep. where it's their path to profitability or how they're going to control costs. So the dialogue now, 33 months later, amongst the industry and the street is a little bit different than it was when when Bob left, probably. Yeah. And and this last quarterly earnings report from Disney really kind of spelled the end for Bob Chapek because you, you raise a good point that they got into a point where they, you know, writ large across all of their direct to consumer operations had passed Netflix in terms of total number of subscribers. But at what cost and at what cost was very heavy that uh, just in this last quarter, they lost almost a billion and a half dollars just on that D to C operation and the rest of the businesses, whether it be the linear TV, the theme parks, what have you. We're just not going to be robust enough to carry that weight. And when you're already trying to pivot towards a more digitally centric focus for the entire company, you know, losing a billion and a half dollars a quarter is just not going to cut it. And in that backdrop and that focus on ultimately cost as well as revenues, ESPN, Disney are going to have to make some decisions about upcoming NBA rights, yep. which are very important to maybe to, Sunday to tickets still in some fashion. Absolutely. And then maybe beyond that, if the CFP kind of gets its act together and there's some yep. kind of ultimately new CFP type 12 team, 16 team championship, that's going to be Whether another be 24 or 26. Uh, yeah, that's going to be a mega package. So there's still a lot of money to be spent potentially in the sports space and companies like Disney and and Discovery and others are going to have to decide what things they need and what things they don't need. Uh, but there'll be a lot of scrutiny on those decisions. But in the meantime, as that dynamic plays itself out, and that's, again, going to be a huge thing to watch in terms of what ESPN does and what Disney overall does. So you raise a great point. But as that dynamic articulates itself, ESPN is going to have a central role in that definition because their chairman, Jimmy Patero, has been immediately appointed to a new working group. Bob Iger set up with Jimmy Patero and three other senior executives to essentially create a new organizational structure for the entire company. And again, one that really has storytelling and creative as its center, as opposed to distribution or perhaps some of these other elements. And so this is Bob Iger and Jimmy Patero already had a good relationship. It was, it, you know, Jimmy worked for Bob before when he was on the Disney side running interactive and consumer products. It was Bob Iger, you know, four, four plus years ago who uh, put Jimmy in his current job. So there was already a good relationship. So none of this really sort of comes as a fundamental surprise. But as these episodes and these twists and turns continue to to move along here, that relationship is still very much intact and, and in fact, really enhanced, if anything. And that's that's good news writ large for ESPN. 
because they're not going to be left out of the cold here. It is. It's good news for ESPN. It's good news for the sports industry and all the people who want to sell ESPN rights of some sort. It's good news for Jimmy because ultimately there's going to be some succession or transition plan in the next few years, and he right. may be well positioned in that regard uh, as well. But but before that, there are going to be a lot of difficult decisions relating to org structure, relating to the focus on creative versus distribution. Even on a micro level at ESPN, they're going to continue to need to think about what they want to do with things like sports betting. Do they want to jump in either you know much further? Uh, do they want to kind of keep it a little bit low key? Where do they want to be on that spectrum? So a lot of important decisions to uh, to deal with over the next couple of years. And in the meantime, we've we've got a sort of daily indicator in terms of how this is all going with Disney stock price, which has been battered all year long. And really since early last year, where the stock over that entire time period has lost about half its value. Uh, but the early returns have been pretty good that there was a, uh, you know, bump up of about six percent or so immediately after the Iger news. There continues to be greater confidence on the street in Iger. A number of the analysts who follow Disney regularly have improved their their ratings and projections for the Disney stock. So there is a, a immediate sense of optimism. But we'll again have it daily reads on how this is all going. Yeah, and and I think within the sports industry, Eric, the people I've talked to who are in leadership positions, I think there's a good feeling about Bob being back because he has been an advocate for sports. He's bought rights. You know, over good the, relationships over, throughout the industry with the league folks, you know, to the extent he can steady the ship and make it easier to do some of these big deals. I think that's going to be very helpful. So he's a familiar face. He's not someone coming in who hasn't had experience with sports, doesn't know the value of sports rights. Jimmy's not going to have to go into his office and say, Bob, we really need the NBA because it drives, I, you know, Bob gets all of that. And I, again, I think that's probably a, a relief for a lot of people in the sports industry. And he's certainly got a history of not being the least bit uh, bashful about taking a big swing. And even though there was, uh, you know, some recent uh, internal memos about trying to watch costs and some of those things, you know, Bob Iger's a guy, you know, bought Pixar, bought Lucasfilm, bought Marvel, done all these big sports deals that, you know, when the opportunity presents itself, he's got a very lengthy history of taking that big swing. Yeah, no, he 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 has, and I. They certainly could take big swings at things. I would say the flip side of that coin is potentially some of the smaller properties, some of the smaller rights deals, some of the smaller ancillary programming uh, initiatives. You know, they may potentially. I don't know if suffers the right word, but but if if more of the capital for sports rights is concentrated around these big deals, it may mean that they can do less of the tertiary kinds of deals. And that may be opportunities for some of the other streaming services or some of the other entities in the sports space. So again, we'll see whether they want to concentrate on the big deals or or sort of spread it broad. Fair point. And so something we're going to be continuing to track. Uh, but as we come towards the end of another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, as always, we like to take a bit of a look elsewhere in this space and see what else is catching our eye. And Chris, I will start with you. Eric, I noticed a deal that was announced this week, uh, TeamSnap, which is a youth sports technology and and communication platform, which uh, works with millions of of families and and coaches and and youth players. Uh, they acquired a company called League Side, which focuses on sponsorship execution in the local markets through a tech platform. And what was interesting to me about this deal is really the culmination of a big year for youth sports M&A. Uh, KKR bought PlayOn, mm-hmm. Pixelot raised $150 million, Huddle bought a few assets. So we've seen over the last 12 months a lot of buoyancy in this youth sports space, which really had had its challenges during COVID, but now seems to be bouncing back kind of full bore. Yeah, this is really one of the foremost rebound sectors of the entire industry, because you raise a good point that just given the health and safety challenges, this was a segment that just didn't have the kind of resources and apparatus to keep playing in the same way that a major college or pro team could or a pro league could. And so many of these entities were just literally shut down for a year or more. And now these entities have come back with force and that in turn leads to the exact kind of deal making that you described. And the other nuance I'd, I'd mention about this deal is league side helps 
drive local sponsorship and local advertising kind of on a micro-targeted basis, which has always been talked about in youth sports, but never really executed. What we've seen for the most part in terms of monetization is people monetizing registration where kids sign up for leagues and teams or subscription where you sign up to watch your kids' video streaming. Now we're finally seeing some of this ad and sponsorship business coming to fruition, and we'll see if that grows over time. Something to continue to watch for sure. And from my standpoint, I'm really keeping an eye on the Major League Baseball free agent market. We're into the, getting into the heart of hot stove time here. We've got winter meetings coming up soon. And certainly we've got talent at the top of the funnel here. You know, the record breaker Aaron Judge, where he goes is a big question. But, you know, writ large, what are the market dynamics uh, for player signings and how teams sort of manage their player payrolls and their budgets? It's going to be very interesting because we're in a very different situation than we were a year ago. We were in the heart of the lockout this time last year and things were very nasty and a number of teams didn't know exactly what the economic landscape was going to look like now we're in the midst of a a five-year deal you know there's a lot of knowns now in the space we've got all sorts of new money coming into the industry through jersey patches and a lot of other new business initiatives so activity should be very robust uh but it's going to be very interesting to sort of have that contrast compare of what this hot stove looks like compared to a year ago so, Eric, you follow this uh, area a lot closer than I do. So I actually have a question for you on this. Do you think within six months or so we're going to know whether the deal the players cut was effective for them in sort of getting the kinds of increases that they hope to get through this process? Because I know a lot of that negotiation had to do with providing incentives for owners to spend money and and driving incentives to win. What Do you think we'll get an answer to that in the next six we'll to eight have months? A, or? We'll have a pretty good early read. Some of these dynamics take multiple years to really play themselves out and be understood and known. But again, this is the first full off season that we've had. This deal was done in March last year. You know, we had this sort of, you know, mad rush to start the season, you know, had a later than normal postseason. And now we're sort of getting back really in full to the normal cadence and the normal calendar of how the sport operates. And so this is really going to be the first clean read that we have to know how that deal fully articulates itself. So we may not have a full answer, but we're going to have a good early track on where this is headed and exactly how well the players had indeed have done. Yeah, there has been a lot of media coverage, at least I've seen a lot of media coverage about how well MLB has been doing in the sponsorship arena and some of these new opportunities like you mentioned. So there's going to be the reality, but also the perception that comes out of this period. Did the players, you know, did they get some of the increases they were hoping for? I'm sure there'll be a lot of chatter about that, but you're right. This is a longer term game than than the next six months, but it will be interesting to see the early returns. And, and some of the early returns, we, you know, if somebody like an Aaron Judge or a Jacob DeGrom or Justin Verlander, that they get a, you know, average annual value well into the 40 millions per year and, you know, beat the kind of money that Max Scherzer got before. Those are some, you know, certainly there there's a longer tail of this to fully understand it, but there'll be some big numbers at the top of the funnel that could and maybe should set some records. And, you know, those will, again, be some of those early indicators. And those are the the deals that will at least get the headlines, sure. uh, in, you know, from a fan perspective. So we'll see again. We'll see how it, how far down it extends. So much more to come on that front. But that's going to wrap up another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly for Chris Russo. I'm Eric Fisher. I thank you very much for listening. And just as a quick disclaimer, this podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. <music>